There is no reforming the schools. The options are survival or escape. But this realization actually marks the beginning of a new and fulfilling educational journey. For both students and parents. Welcome to the School Sucks Project. Our mission is to provide clarity, support, and empowerment to parents who are concerned and frustrated with the content and culture of the public schools. We achieve this mission through the creation of educational and entertaining media and the development of supportive communities. Continuously building a more detailed picture of what genuine self-directed education can look like. We are determined to pursue this mission because we understand the dangers of indoctrination, toxic school culture, and short-sighted education policies. And we deeply value intrinsically motivated learning, autonomy, and choice in education. And please remember the three important facts we first tried to share when we started in 2009. The schools will not improve. Higher education will not improve. The political conversation about these institutions will not improve. Only we can improve. So let's begin. Hi, this is Brett. Welcome back to The Essential School Sucks. This is number 18. It is called Learning without schooling. So we went from growing without schooling in the previous episode to learning without schooling in this episode. And next up, you guessed it, succeeding without schooling. So at the very beginning of this Essential School Sucks collection, I promised you curation and that's what you get today. This is the first time that I have taken pieces from two different shows to make one show for you in this collection. Both voices are mothers. Both mothers have three children. And both presented their children with the choice of unschooling versus continuing on in the public schools. Both were recorded in 2018, one in the spring and one in the fall. So first up, you will hear Sandra Dodd. That was from November 2018. She is a world-renowned unschooling and natural learning advocate and the mother of, like uh, Pat Varenga, except Pat was a father, mother of three adult unschooled children. Her website is sandradod.com, and this is one of the most comprehensive unschooling resources on the entire internet, which is saying a lot because that's a huge place. Now, in today's show, we're going to talk the three R's, and these are concerns. A lot of parents contemplating alternatives to school often ask about, often worry about, often don't know really how to approach, and they are reading because this is like the ultimate test of school, right? Well, let me go through them first, then we'll come back to reading. Reading, routines, and rules. School provides all three, definitely routines and rules. Reading might be more debatable. Will children go to school and learn how to sound out words and string them into sentences? You bet. I did, and I wasn't even a good student. What I hope you understand at this point is missing from that reading instruction that children do receive in school is critical thinking. My friend Richard Grove once said, and this is a confronting quote, so brace yourself, literacy is a form of slavery until a method of critical thinking is consistently applied by the reader. Only then does reading become an educational experience. Prior to that method being implemented, reading is indoctrination to ideas which you have no cognitive resistance. Everybody in North Korea gets a TV. Everybody in Castro's Cuba learned to read. They had like an 100% literacy requirement there, and people tolerated Castro and his regime for decades. 
It was so they could absorb the propaganda. Now, obviously, you know me by now. I'm ranting here. But this, for parents, has been one of the most important metrics of school, right? Measurements of school. You go in, you can't read. You leave, you can kind of read, right? So school did its job. Now, rules in life are important. Rules we create for ourselves, rules and expectations that we have uh, as far as like communities we're a part of. And I take it from me, life really improves when you have some consistent, solid routines. So if you take this laissez-faire approach to education called unschooling, how does all this happen? So Sandra Dodd, my first guest, and Pam Laricchia, my second guest, will address these questions in the audio you're about to hear. The second portion is from April 13th, 2018. It's called The Relationship Benefits of Unschooling with Pam Laricchia. Now, Pam is the creator of the blog Living Joyfully, which is an amazing, well-organized resource for people exploring how to live and learn without school. She's also the author of several books on unschooling, including The Unschooling Journey, A Field Guy. And she began unschooling with her three children back in 2002. And since then, she has been consistent in her continuation of enthusiastic exploration. She does blogging, podcasting, and presenting at a lot of conferences. So unfortunately, both guests have their background stories cut out of the audio you're about to hear. For this, I really just wanted the most actionable information in the show. Both of these podcasts are linked in the notes, and you can go listen to them in their entirety. Sandra's story is amazing. She was actually a public school teacher. And Pam, like the first 30 or 40 minutes of that conversation that you won't hear in this audio are about, as the title of the original podcast suggested, the relationship, fourth R here, fourth R, relationships, the relationship benefits of unschooling. And I think if you're taking this possibility seriously for your family, that conversation with Pam is really worth listening to. So we introduced the concept of unschooling in this Essential School Suck series long ago at this point. We've been doing this for five weeks already. I hope you're enjoying it. As always, I look forward to your feedback. And we really got into it in the last show with Pat Ferenga. But if you go out on your own, and you start joining Facebook groups or following Twitter or Instagram hashtags on the subject of unschooling, you might see some things that you find unsettling. There are people who take the philosophy of unschooling, in my opinion, a little bit too far. So you might join a Facebook group and see a horrifying picture of a boy, and the mother's caption is, my son wants to be a barber, so I let him practice by shaving off his eyebrows. Here he is, unschooling. I'm not into this. Like, biologically speaking, the need for eyebrows might be something we've outgrown, or at least we're, like, well into the process of outgrowing. But I think you should have them, and I don't use the word should a lot. At any age, you show up someplace, you've got no eyebrows, you're just inviting all kinds of questions and suspicions about who you are and what you're doing. I'm sorry I'm ranting again. I can't believe I'm ranting like this when we have so much show ahead of us. If you're taking this unschooling exploration seriously— you might want to grab a notebook for this one. And remember, what's being discussed here are principles and practices, and you don't have to go it alone if this is something you decide you want to do as a family. We've already talked about the Circle School, Big Fish, Sparks Academy, 
various homeschooling and unschooling co-ops. There are people, and, and today you're going to learn even more about that, but there are people who want to work together on this project as a community. So right now, yes, many people outsource these educational responsibilities to the schools, which plot twist are not about education at all. And they somehow think they're going to fix them by attending school board meetings. It's not going to happen. It says that those are the first lines in the introduction to the podcast. There is no reforming the schools. The options are escape or survival. And survival is getting harder and harder these days. So now with the creation of this 18th episode in the Essential School Sucks, we have one of the most comprehensive pieces of audio on the philosophy of unschooling and the practicalities of unschooling as it relates to reading, routines, rules, and relationships. If you are finding these presentations valuable, please exchange value for value and support the School Sucks Project. In exchange, you get even more value including access to years of archives, numerous bonus shows. At the higher levels of support, you get access to our private community on a month-to-month basis. The easiest way to do this, even though there are numerous options and you can see them in the show notes, is to become a patron at patreon.com slash school sucks. For $6 a month, you can get all the School Sucks archives right now all the way back to 2016, but I'm working on pushing that further back into the past, including both the shows you're going to hear today, even though I will link these two shows in the show notes for free for you, as well as a lot of really entertaining and educational conversation on topics like history, personal development, current events. It's all there, patreon.com slash school sucks. In the upcoming show, Succeeding Without Schooling, you're going to start hearing some of the voices from Praxis. You can get a head start by clicking the link in the show notes or going to discoverpraxis.com slash school sucks podcast to grab a copy of their free book. It's a nice introduction to what they're all about and what they do with great success. It's called Forward Tilt, and it's written by Praxis founder Isaac Morehouse, and Praxis graduate Hannah Frankman. I am extremely proud, as I've said many times, of our partnership with Praxis for The Essential School Sucks, and I really hope, whether you need them or not, because you know somebody who does, you'll go and grab a copy of this book and start, you know, pointing yourself, pointing your own teens, or pointing somebody else's teens in potentially, for many people, a much better direction than the traditional college path. Thank you so much for listening. This is The Essential School Sucks number 18, originally released April 13th, 2018 as The Relationship Benefits of Unschooling with Pam Larickia, Podcast 557, and November 9th, 2018, Sandra Dodd on Unschooling and Choice, Podcast 585. It starts with Sandra Dodd, and then when that show ends and the bumper music plays, we'll pick up halfway through the conversation with Pam Laricchia. All right, here we go.
your kids, especially when they're really little, like somebody from another country whose cultures are really different from ours. If you assume that your child is is a full, fully formed human, they just don't understand the expectations of the day. So right. you might have to coach them about shaking hands and where not to be loud and where to be loud and where to have your shoes on and where not to have your shoes on. All those things they need to learn, but the same way you would with an adult guest, an adult visitor. If somebody comes to New Mexico, I might say, okay, when we get to the restaurant, they're going to say, do you want red or green? And here's what that means. Right. Little things that are factors in life for whatever reason, it helps to coach the people on what's expected. Some unschoolers say, we're unschoolers. You can do whatever you want to. And there have been some people who have like taken photos of their kids where the kids shouldn't have been and then go, unschooling. Like, mm-hmm. who? <laughs> it's, it's very irritating to me that they're, that they're willing to make unschoolers look bad and that they don't really understand the potential or the value of what they could be doing. Right. Uh, I, was, I want to go back to reading because I saw kids read and learn to read naturally, some of them very young. And I think everybody's known a person or two in their lives who learned to read at two or three, just saw this stuff and figured it out. Mm-hmm. Then they go to school and they endure years of reading lessons while they already know how to read. And then uh, some don't figure it out till they're 12 or 13, but they do. At some point, they have all of the maturity and calm and experience, whatever all it takes, because I don't know what all it takes, but some of it's physical and mental maturity, to figure that puzzle out on their own, because they do figure it out on their own. Some ki- I, uh, another, another of my great lab experiences, when I was in first grade, I was, uh, went to school in Texas near my grandmother, and then the, all the other years I was in New Mexico. We were learning uh, look-say, looks I think it was called. You outlined the, num- the words. And there was also some phonics involved, but it was mostly what the word looks like. You, so you, were, you would say you were learning to read at that age primarily through look-say? Well, in first grade. Okay. And I didn't, okay. I, I didn't know how to read when I went in, and I knew how to read by the end of the year. Halfway through, they used to sneak me over to the library where first graders weren't allowed to go, and I checked out books a couple of times. Um, I remember the teacher looking both ways down the hallway and going in the library quickly. That was mm-hmm, funny. Mm-hmm. But uh, I learned to read at school. I don't know if I learned to read from school, because having been a teacher now and having hung out with all these unschoolers and having seen my own kids learn to read, when a kid learns to read, it's not because they wanted to. It's not because they worked at it. It's because it came to them. The the things started to make sense. So whether uh, one of my kids is is the typical left-handed mathish engineerish kid mm-hmm. who in school could easily uh, they would have said he's dyslexic. Yeah. It didn't make any difference to me because I knew that he was going to figure out how to read in his own way. Because so do the kids at school. No matter how many reading ex- experts they give them, or how many little reading machines that drag your eyes left to right and stuff. It doesn't matter because at some point you either figure it out or you get so pissed off at people pushing you and trying and shaming you that you don't learn it. School creates non-readers. Agreed. And yep. I, I've never seen unschooling create a non-reader, but I have seen a couple of kids who didn't learn till they were 14 or 15. That's the outside edge. And it wasn't because of anything, because they were not being pressured. It was just because they weren't ready. And when they read, what, what I was going to say about the comparison between unschooled kids reading and school kids reading is school kids are dragged, dragged, dragged for years through the reading curriculum, where every year the reading levels oh, – I learned how to, how to figure out the reading levels of books at one point, too. 
you know, to find a passage. It has to do with the length of words, the number of words in a sentence, how complicated are the words. So they purposely weed out anything that's going to be hard to read and give you an easy thing that with only the sounds that you've studied and stuff. But when I moved to New Mexico, it was phonics all the way, absolutely hardcore phonics. So I had both. I had both tools. Right. And most people didn't. So I knew that some people can learn easily one way and some people can learn the other way. It makes more sense to them. I don't mean learn to read easily. I mean they take those tools and use them. So every kid who learns to read is going to learn in his own way, no matter what the noise is around him. So let's talk just for a second about the parent kind of observing this process. A lot of people talk about being a parent in a natural learning environment as a kind of patient experimentation. And I've heard you say in one of your videos, uh, read a little, try a little, wait a little, watch. And I, I want to talk about that that watching process, right? When it comes to like specifically reading, maybe as you were going through this with your own children, what were you watching for? Um, there's nothing really to watch for except they when they can read, they do. I, I think a lot of people might feel anxious, like people who haven't gone through this yet. And I've talked to a lot of parents who – and they, they're aware of this. They admit that they – are processing what's happening with their own children through a kind of schooled mindset. You know what I mean? Like they're oh, sure. still working on this timetable that was put into their head. Um, oh, yeah. So it's it can be a little nerve-wracking. And this is just, you know, from the, the authentic experiences that I've heard from people, watching and waiting and not knowing when this is going to happen and the wondering, like, what else could I or unfortunately should I be doing in a situation like this as oh, a parent. Oh, I see the question better now. Yeah. Well, in any case, in any given situation or moment, the parent's choice can might be seen as you could screw it up or you could leave it alone. Mm. You could make it worse or you could choose not to make it worse. There may not be a way to make it better. Better might be don't screw it up. And um, maybe the best analogy for that is not pulling a plant up to see if the roots are growing. Sure. You may not be able to get it back in the hole. That's not good for the plant. There are roots you couldn't see that you've just torn off. So anytime they take the kid aside and say, okay, well, we've been unschooling for three years. So what do you actually know? Let's have a test. Like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Now you're, you're showing backstage to the kid. Why don't you just go clean up backstage instead? So the de-schooling of the parents is the dismantling of their sensibly long-held beliefs that there's something just as natural about – semesters and tests and grade levels as the leaves turning in the fall and the moon coming up. Sure. But it's not. It is not natural. But because they grew up that way, seeing it in themselves and everybody else, it became natural. And they need to start gradually in themselves sorting out what is construct from what is natural, or they can't have natural learning happen or flourish at their houses if they're still looking at school learning and comparing it to that. It's a lot of work, and that's a bad thing about unschooling. So when anybody's trying to sell unschooling and saying, it's easy, you don't have to do anything, just take your kids out of school. <laughs> right, right. Oh, it makes me mad because then those people, that's still, that's still, that's happened to me twice this week where somebody learned at somebody else's group some nonsense and came and complained to us. Well, I did all of this, and now my husband and I are fighting and the kids are unhappy and one of them stays up all night. It's like, I don't, I don't want to say, where did you get this bad advice? Cause sometimes I already know, but we end up saying, okay, step back a little bit. You jumped too far. You didn't, you were doing things you didn't understand. You didn't know the why or the, the, the idea of it. 
you did it like it was a new rule, like you replaced the old rules with some new unschooling rules, and that won't work. You need to go with the principles behind it. And that just sounds like so much work to some people. And it is because if people start to unschool and they like and they don't like it, they can put the kid back in school of some sort, which I was always willing to do with my kids. I didn't get to that part in my story, but I thought maybe Kirby will not be ready for school right away, but the other kids will be. Kirby right. was plenty bright. He just wasn't good in groups. He wasn't good at being at taking direction. Uh, in one group he was in, he got frustrated and cried. In another, another that was a dance class. In an art class he was in, he couldn't wait for the teacher to give the directions. He'd just start grabbing the stuff. Right. So that's yep. why he didn't see the school. It wasn't that it wasn't that he wasn't uh, receptive to things. It was that he was not going to participate in a group in such a way that the parent that the teachers would be impressed with. So that I give it a, a year. But I still thought Marty might go because Marty's kind of a jockish kid and might want the other kids to you know run around with, play ball with. And then he didn't go. And then I thought, Holly, Holly used to change clothes three times a day and make outfits and parade around and say, isn't this pretty? Is this pretty? I thought, Holly's going to want the audience. There's a built-in audience for Holly. <laughs> right. But each as they came along, I said, do you want to go to school or stay home? For me, that was crucial. That's the pivot point that made it work because of what I knew about the open classroom failure. I thought, I could do this with unschooling. I could put this on someone who didn't agree to it, who didn't choose it, and it would fail. Right, Because it's possible to be as resentful about not being allowed to go to school as being forced to go to school. Yeah, think- be- because it's still a power over relationship, like being made explicit if a parent says you're and, – and I do hear a lot of people who wind up being unschoolers say this, like they definitely had the choice. Um, you know, obviously we we talk a lot about uh, the problem of power over relationships in parenting where that is very, very clear – throughout the entire relationship. There's this other problem that I think you've spoken about a little bit, and I agree it's not good for parents and it's not good for children, that instead of power with, which is what you're talking about, a kind of partnership, there's a mutual powerlessness where kids are placated, they're left to do whatever they want, the parents tell themselves a story about why this totally I, – I, I don't want to use judgmental language uh, about it more than I already have, I guess. But just this idea that it's it's totally hands-off, whatever happens will happen, and that's kind of magical in itself where there, there's this lack of, of consciousness about it. So I think it, we're agreeing that, that that power with relationship, that partnership is, is really what's important here. But it starts with the presentation of a choice. Yes, and the parents have a choice because they can put their kids in school. I think it's a bad thing for kids to vilify school. So the name of your project here made me nervous at first because if parents tell a child, school is horrible, school is the devil, school is hell, you will never see a school as long as, as you live. And then the parents die in a flaming car wreck and their kids end up going to school. Yeah. Uh, scare them to death. I always said, school's cool. It's all right. Some people don't like it very much. You don't have to go if you don't want to. If you want to go, you can. Right. Which seems to me uh, more honest and healthier because there I, there can be a family. My mom wasn't as, as nice to me as my teachers were. She drank and she was resentful and jealous and she just had some bad personality traits and it wasn't as good at my house as it was at school. I was at school as much as I could possibly be. If there was another club I could join or anything I could do, marching band, choir, is there any any sort of club that I could join where I stay after school? I would. 
um, because I liked the other people. I, all those things I was attributing to my kids, I think I liked it. I wanted the audience. I wanted the other people to bounce ideas off of. I wanted the social life, and I wanted the library, and I wanted to talk to the teachers who had traveled and who had really cool hobbies at home. My science teacher restored old cars. You know, I, I would talk to them about whatever they were willing to talk about. Mm-hmm. And so for me, I use school in my own way for my own purposes. Not everyone can or will do that. Yeah, and most of my teaching experience was actually with a population of students who had very uh, troubled, distressed kinds of home lives. And it's uh, it's obviously something that I have to acknowledge that for many people out there, school can be a kind of respite. The problem, and I think we agree, is that once you walk in the door, choice ends. And if you don't know how right. to survive that process, it can obviously be quite destructive for, for a lot of people, yeah. whether it's through conformity or rebellion and not finding the middle ground and not having the perspective as as a young person to to navigate that successfully – I named the show School Sucks, number one, because nine years ago, I was much angrier (laughs) than I am now. I felt lied to. I felt very betrayed. I've thought about renaming it several times. But one Is that when you quit teaching? Was that the nine-year mark? No, I had actually quit teaching in 2006, and then I had gone on to do like college consulting and private tutoring, completely switching populations from – uh, you know, inner city kids who had a lot of emotional challenges from broken homes and going and working in, you know, the greater Boston area with wealthy overachievers bound for Ivy League schools, helping them write college essays and and recognizing that a lot of the same problems existed as far as the the emotional impact of the coercion, that experience. And, and I think that at the time, working as a tutor with these kids who were captain of the football team, AP level, uh, and and just seeing that they had, you know, a general lack of enthusiasm, um, a general lack of, of confidence uh, in themselves, an absence of optimism uh, mm. about their future. They just very much appeared to me like they were following tracks kind of unconsciously. And I contrasted that experience with nieces and nephews that I had at the time who were, you know, five and six years old, and they had this incredible enthusiasm. They believed in themselves. They wanted to show you what they could do. And I kind of, in my analysis, I was like, all right, well, these, you know, these little kids have have done nothing. You know, they 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 are just they know a few jokes. They can do a cartwheel. I, I, and I'm not saying they've they've done nothing. They they do wonderful things all the time. But I'm saying like as far as like what they're told achievements are, they don't have any of that under their belt yet. So what's separating them? What's the difference between these kids who have finger quotes achieved and these little kids who haven't? And it was you know fifteen thousand hours of schooling yeah. between that yeah. had sucked a oh, lot yeah. of the natural teaching tools, you know, those innate teaching tools that we have, especially like curiosity and and creativity and and self-direction, they haven't been broken of that yet, the way these older kids had. So it seemed like an appropriate name. It was also, I feel like the number one phrase that my own students used to describe their school experience. I've heard it myself. (laughs) (laughs) But I totally get what you're saying. Yeah, You and I could both tell, you know, hours and hours of, of stories about what sucks about school. And I know that, but I also have seen kids just frightened out of their wits about what if I have to go back to school? Mm. Because sometimes one parent, usually the mom, occasionally the dad, is so attached to the idea of unschooling that she's willing to throw over everything else in her life, including her husband. And right. then then the kids end up in school because the judge said they had to be in school. Yeah. And those poor kids are so scared 
that then they can't function. So I don't, I don't think it's worth doing that. And I, and I have seen people other than myself who liked school. Also, to be fair, your rich Boston clients were paying for tutoring. Yeah. So they weren't the kids who liked it well enough to bounce up to the top and bounce out. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Or their parents want them to do better, whatever. It could be pressure to get into Harvard. I read years ago, many years ago, that Harvard was ignoring any uh, applications that were 4.0 Eagle Scout because they all of them were. Like they had enough of those every year to fill up the whole class. Indeed, yeah. The first client I ever had as a tutor, she was a non-traditional Boston college student. She was from South Vietnam, and she was old enough at the time to have actually survived the Viet Cong and fled the country and wound up in the United States. And she was applying to Harvard as a non-traditional student. And I was just working with her on the application process. And her uh, her reading and writing skills, her English reading and writing skills were really underdeveloped. And I had a much different attitude, obviously, or uh, less knowledge about Harvard at that time. And I said to the person who's running the company that I work for, I was like, this isn't going to work. Uh, you know, she's really like not at the level of academic performance that Harvard's going to require. And she said, no, oh, she's already in. Like, you're going through a formality, right? Because uh, they yeah. like they like the story. That's That's what they want. And so that obviously opened my eyes to what I think Harvard is actually, and a lot of those Ivy League schools are looking for, because you're absolutely right. They have no shortage of those kinds of applicants. And that was actually another frustration related to this job. I would meet a lot of people who were very, very intelligent, and they were kind of going into this, you know, even at that time, $30,000, $40,000 a year college endeavor, very unconsciously, just feeling like it was the 13th grade. And I felt like I was enforcing that pressure on them through my job. Oh my gosh. So even though you had quit teaching, now you're still serving the schools. Oh no, I I was doing a a kind of eulogy for John Taylor Gatto in my last podcast. And I was reflecting on how his work shaped my experience where I'm encountering, you know, Holt, Kozel, Gatto, all at the time when I'm doing this work. And it's kind of coloring everything that I'm doing and, and showing it in this new light. And I described my experience at the time as being a public school enforcement officer. If I showed up at your house to work on grades with you, the implicit suggestion was I'm here because something is wrong with you. Yeah, and you're on probation. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Not live your other life. Exactly. Oh my gosh, that'd be so harsh. Yeah, it was. And uh, that was eventually what led me to doing this project full time is I just felt like, you know, through the help of these influences like Holt, like Otto, like Kozel was a big one and, and a handful of others. And then, you know, I started to say, all right, well, who else is criticizing the schools and why? And, you know, I was introduced to what is often called the radical school reform movement of the 1960s and, and all of those voices and right. yeah. the de-schooling concept. You know, I, I put together my own mind map that was, you know, philosophically influenced, but also experientially influenced. And um, that's how I wound up moving forward w- with this project. But I was very, very lucky to encounter the things I encountered when I did. I wanted to be a high school principal. That was my career track. Is After I taught yeah. public school history for a while, I would go and be an administrator, right? Because that's where the money was. And it was also being involved in education in some way. So I'm very grateful that I had the encounters that I did and it steered me in a different direction. But yeah, the the, the frustration and the the questioning I had of what I was doing, it became so palpable that eventually I just kind of had to do something about it. That reminded me of a reason that I quit. Not that I, I already was thinking about quitting, but I said I would like to transfer to the high school next year because I want to teach some electives. I'm tired of five, you know, one prep, uh-huh. five things over and over all day. 
And I was told by people I knew to be half incompetent that I'd known since I was a kid that I was doing very well where I was and that I was more suited for what I so was. So if you do badly, you become an administrator. If you do too well, they stick you there for life. And they said, and I said, well, think about it anyway. I would really like to transfer. And they hired two people from out of district that year to teach at the high school and left me in ninth grade. Mm. And that became the beginning of my last year because I thought these guys don't, don't care what I want. And I have, I have been doing a good job. I was – they were going to, for what it's worth, I was going to be the head of the English department there, and I was the youngest. Um, and they wanted me to be like, uh, represent the, the uh, union and all of that. I, did, I wasn't interested in that. I wasn't interested in the politics of it. But even the other, you know, the other teachers respected me, is what I'm trying to say. They weren't like, oh, you're so irritating. They would say your class is kind of loud. Could you keep it down? <laughs> but that was, the, that was the complaint. So I wanted to talk about choices really quickly because I know time's almost up. Sure. Um, you said what do the what should the parents be doing while they're waiting? Well, they shouldn't be waiting. They should be living a really rich life where input isn't dependent on reading. Yes. My my youngest read later than the boys did. I expected her to read earlier because she was a girl, and I had this prejudice or things I had learned reading about how reading works that girls learn ease, learn earlier, and she just didn't. And so what happened was when she first read, she. Read a Judy Bloom. I had a I had a guy in Australia say I was uh, that I was lying. <laughs> I said, oh, you saying the I'm television. A liar? He said yes. Yeah, that t- TV guy. Yes. When I talked to him after that interview, I I said my daughter learned to read, and I told him this story. Her neighbor, who was homeschooled with a curriculum, had been told by her mother, "You don't want to grow up like Holly Dodd. You don't. You need to learn to read." So she gave her a Judy Bloom book. I don't remember which one. And it was, you need to learn, read this book. But the mom wasn't reading it with her. It was just like, read a chapter and come and, you know, tell me you read it. Where are you in the book? So Holly felt bad for this girl because she couldn't go out and play because she was supposed to be reading this book. So Holly asked me to get her copy, and I did. So Holly's letting the girl read it to her because Holly can't read, and the other girl's 10, and Holly's 11, I think. So Holly ends up figuring out how to read from that, from reading along with her and helping her read it. Holly learned to read. The next book she read was um, Stephen King's The Body, which is a novella but you know that's not written at anybody's grade level and she loved stand by me that was her favorite show since she was a little kid and so she said isn't that a a book a short story i said it was Mm. longer than a short story but yeah i went and got her a copy that day brought it back and she started reading that so if an 11 year old can read stephen king and she couldn't read a few months before that at that point i already knew that this could happen but that was a really pretty fancy demo at my house uh, because right. her vocabulary, her vocabulary was already really big, so it wasn't like she, if she was five or six and and saw a big word, she would just be lost. You know, where do I attack this with what little phonics I know? Right. This is a, bo- a word I've never seen before. Drawing an outline around it isn't going to work. Like that Dick and Jane book thing. There, there are only like thirty words in the whole thing or something. So I was I was confident by then because I'd seen my boys learn to read. But, but for Holly to jump Judy Bloom, Stephen King, that's the crowning moment. I don't need to worry about it anymore. But so for parents who think that there should be intermediate steps, that's a good story. Maybe there aren't intermediate steps. Maybe I learned to read when I was six because I was ready to learn to read. And the fact that people around me were reciting phonics rules and, and I, we were reading through in our in our classroom, these Dick and Jane books, maybe that's not what caused me to read. Mm-hmm. Or maybe like Holly seeing her friend make mistakes, maybe me seeing the other kids attack a word badly helped me see what how not to read. Right, right. So and, I don't know because I wasn't yet that analytical, but I don't think that 
teaching a child to read is going to help, I think it's going to make them afraid and make them frustrated because if they can't, they can't, period, whether they're in school or they're home. And so it's not anything that anybody can do. And then some people will come into a discussion and say, when they really want to learn to read, they will. No. If they really want to learn to read and they're not ready, distract them. Movies. Share movies with them. Share music. And don't don't not like write out the song lyrics and make them read along. Nothing like that. Nothing, nothing scholarly. You know, nothing, nothing that's that looks like school. When the parents are still trying to make unschooling look like school, that's because the parents haven't de-schooled. Before I ever came to homeschooling, somebody somewhere had said de-schooling takes a month for every year you've been in school. I, I still never have heard where that first came from. And it wasn't even about unschooling. It was about any kind of school, any kind of homeschooling. And so I thought, well, why would there be a claim like that? But I've never seen it fail. Right. That's yeah, what it takes. It's interesting. I an, Another thing that I really like that I heard you say in another one of your videos was somebody asked you just about the whole unschooling enterprise. How long does it, how, how much time does this take? I think was the question. And mm-hmm. the answer was something like, it takes all the time and none of the time. Pam Sarushi and I were both there and, and I think she said none. How much time, how much time do you have to spend every day on this? She said none. I said all. And that's what it is. You change your life. You change the way you see and believe and interact. But it's also with respect to de-schooling, it's the contrast between what people, uh, the expectations that people might bring versus what natural learning is, right? If you're asking me about natural learning, I might say, then yeah, it's all of your time. If you're talking to me about schooling and your schooling-related expectations or your schooled expectations, then it's none of your time. That's over. That's it. That's it. And so when people, when we talk about choices, when I say you don't have to, and people are coming into the new discussion, they go, well, you have to do this, or I had to do that. I stop them, and I give them a link to my page on uh, have to, com slash have to. It's because if you feel like you have to do something, you've just made yourself powerless unnecessarily. Don't do that. For one thing, you don't move from that imagined have to. Right. And for another thing, you get in the habit of saying have to, you're going to pass it around. You're going to tell your kids what they have to do too. And if they don't have a choice, they can't make a choice. And when when people say, well, he chose to be an Olympic swimmer when he was seven. It's like no kid ever learned, ever chose to be an Olympic swimmer when he was seven. But some people will come up with something like that. Well, he said he wants to be a pilot. She said she's interested in this. Okay, let that interest last for about a minute or a lifetime, but don't own it. Don't take it over. And if the parents say, I want to unschool and I want to do it and I'm never going to change my mind, that's not as healthy as saying, I'm going to try this for a while. Mm-hmm. Because when when I, when I I'm talking about making choices, I don't mean make a choice for the rest of your life. Even with a marriage, you choose to marry somebody and you make oaths in front of people. That's not going to last you 40 years. You have to decide a couple or five times a day to be nice, to stick around, to help that person to listen to them. And so it's the same with unschooling, too. If you're going to have a good relationship with another person, with your partner, with your child, with the neighbors, with the other unschoolers, you need to choose over and over and over as often as you can. Maybe maybe people aren't going to make three conscious choices a day, but if they're really good at it and they're in the flow and they have a bunch of little kids, they can get up to 40, 40 conscious choices a day. I don't think anybody's ever counted them, but you know what I mean. Right, absolutely. One conscious one conscious choice to be a kind parent forever isn't going to get you past the next morning. You're going to get tired and irritated. But if every time you start to do something, you try to remember that you do have a choice, you don't have to do this, then the choices can ratchet up gradually to to a place that you never knew you could even get to as to patience and understanding and an acceptance of how learning works. But it does, you can't jump 
15 steps all at once. You have to walk there yourself. So you might start with choices that are that sound horrible, like I could send them to school or I could buy a curriculum. Okay, well, buy the curriculum. That doesn't mean you have to use it. Just because you bought a curriculum doesn't mean that you're obligated to do 180 days of school at home at the table. Right. So if people make choices all along, then they can walk away from the things that were harmful to them as children or that might be harmful to their children now. They can walk one step at a time towards something better as they gradually, from read a little, try a little, wait a while, watch, start to see what does seem to them better. Right. And it's a, it's a great way to promote conscious living. The absence of choice really invites apathy where the abundance of choice is kind of a shield against the development of that apathy. Like in school, I felt like I was, it wasn't, you know, it was always implicit, but it was consistent, obey and conform, you know, like, like fit in, fit this mold. And, and the result of that, for me anyway, and I understand everybody's experience is different, but it, it was a kind of apathy where I became an adult. And in that state, I said, well, who's going to, who's going to author this life? You know, not, me, you know, because um, I, I had never had uh, the availability of choices in so many aspects of life. But I, I have seen that contrast with with unschoolers or, or people who really embrace this idea that you're you're talking about. They very much see themselves as authoring their own story, and uh, you know that is one of the most important things that that I'm promoting with my work. And it sounds like you're doing something similar. I don't know. That doesn't sound like me. No. <laughs> No, I don't. I think living in the moment is more my style than authoring your own story. But I may be, I may be misunderstanding what you're envisioning with your phrase too. But I don't think that deciding what you want to do in advance and then feeling that you have to do that is is as useful as living in a sort of alert and open way with what happens the next day and the next moment. I think the two are totally related. I mean, not to okay. torture the metaphor, but <laughs> you do have to kind of author your own story one, one line at a time. You okay. Know? Well, and that, okay. I'll go with it then. <laughs> yeah, that is that, is that, that conscious uh, living and, and being in the moment, sure. There, there's a joke about stuntmen and circuses and stuff where they say, kids, don't try this at home. Mm -hmm. There are things about school that parents should not try at home. Right. Right. That was one of John Holt's most powerful warnings, I think. Yeah, I forget what he called it. Uh, maybe he just said, don't make your home a miniature school or something yes. like that. Yes. Right. Yes. That's a good quote. I like that. So another thing about John Holt, I just want to throw in here sure. because I was a huge John Holt fan when I first started this. That's what I would read for inspiration is John Holt books. Mm. Then as my kids got older and I saw myself and some of the other people that I hung around with a lot, Joyce Federal, Pam Sarushian, some other ones, Deb Lewis, as we tried this stuff out, we learned things that John Holt didn't have the ability to do, to see, to get to. Because when he traveled, he stayed with families, but he was always a visitor. Right. And the, it's like the, the principle of an experiment affecting the data. Absolutely, yep. How is a kid going to act when John Holt's visiting? Well, you know, not the way he acts when John Holt's not visiting. For To whatever extent, we don't know and it doesn't matter. He never was a parent. And so he didn't have to get up in the middle of the night with anybody. He didn't – He it was, it was school with him and theory with him. And I'm very, very grateful that he did learning without schooling because he was – he had the time and energy and interest to connect these people together. A lot of unschoolers still then, then especially and still now, don't take it beyond academics. And for me, to separate life from academics misses – like 90% of the learning that happens when you 
when you don't divide the world into subject areas. Yeah. When any moment can when people are new, they're consciously going to be looking at that like they'll do something and go, oh, my gosh. And I've, and I've mentioned a few things already here about when I was teaching. That was science and history and language. It's like, okay. After, you've, after you do that for a year or two and you're, and you're categorizing things as they happen, after a while you can stop doing that because you become confident enough that everything will touch on everything eventually. That every single thing, every thought, every object connects to two or ten other things. And pretty soon you realize that you're living in this web and this grid of connections and that whatever you do, whatever happens tomorrow will be part of your own story, but you don't need to know where it's going to go. Just be the best, most joyful, most open you that you can be, healthy, happy, learning, and it won't slide backwards. You won't fall out of that. It'll hold you up. It'll... It'll, well, I've never said this before, so I ran out of words. It'll like buoy you up in that learning environment, mm-hmm. and there's no hole to fall out of. Right, absolutely. I, I remember in, um, I think it was Class Dismissed, you were interviewed for that documentary, and I remember being quite like struck by this statement that you made that you didn't like the word education. And then I kind of thought about it. You know, like one of, one of the most important things that I try to do is make explicit the difference between schooling and education on my show. But I got the sense that you felt like education makes it the word itself like an education, right? So now it becomes this noun that is like self-contained. It's defined. It's limited, especially when you consider how most people think about education. Did you get an education? You right. Know, where it, did it you has get a your start education? And a finish. It has edges. Right. Exactly. It, yeah. It also is 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 something that was predefined. It was something that existed that then you went and got. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So I really, I really like that reframing of it. I think that's really valuable. And um, I think that would be a nice place to end. I really, really enjoyed the conversation, Sandra. And I was hoping you could just tell my audience a little bit about where they could find more of your work, uh, audio, video, articles, and books. My books are being re-released later this year, early next year, new editions by Pamela Rickia. So don't get a book yet, or I don't know, you can. I have two books, The Big Book of Unschooling and Moving a Puddle, which Moving a Puddle is a collection of all of the published essays up to 2005. And so some of those are pre-internet and from when my kids were little, which can be interesting all in itself and has a lot of photos in it. If you get the ebook from Lulu, the photos are in color too. But uh, just to find to find anything of mine, go to sandradod.com and there are links to other things. You can also go to the, you can put sandradod.com and then type garbage. And then you'll get a search box. You can look things up. Uh There are – I thought I had over 2,000 pages of unschooling information. And and when I last talked to my provider about my site, they said there are over 6,000 HTML pages. Some of those – some of those are not about unschooling. So I, that must be 5,000 pages or so. It's a lot. And by page, you know what I mean. Like some of them, if you print out, it'd be 10. So I've just been collecting and adding to this collection as people wrote wonderful things. I save them. And so there's a ton of stuff there. Nobody will ever find it all or read it all. And I don't expect anybody to even try. But my point is going to be whatever you're looking for might be in there. And if not, find a discussion that I'm in and ask, and we will build you something. 
That is terrific. Well, it's long overdue that I had you on the show. You've been on my list of guests that I was excited about for a long time. And I know at this point, you are a world-renowned unschooling advocate. So I definitely appreciate your time. And I appreciate you taking a chance with a show called School Sucks. And uh, I'm very I'm very happy with how it went. So thank you so much. Thank you. We've been talking about your background, how you get started, and because you have such a great resource in, in living joyfully, I wanted to direct some of our discussion towards you know people who are exploring or starting unschooling. You do mm-hmm. have a free book on your website called What is Unschooling? And I think it's fair to say it's it's kind of like a snapshot or a sampling of a lot of the content that's that's on the mm-hmm. website. It's more of an overview. It's more of an introduction. But there's um, a section in the book called How Do I Get Started? And I found a couple pieces of this really uh, important. One, like talking about, you know, local homeschooling regulations never seems like a fun or enjoyable topic. I've devoted very little because my show also has an international audience. I've devoted very little time to it. Um, I do want to cover that, but I wanted to start with talking about rules. When you're transitioning kids or kids are making that transition for themselves from school to this type of environment and the kind of de-schooling or decompression process has to take place, you know, a lot of people might make the mistake of a, again, that sort of night and day swap from one way of doing things to another way of doing things. But you talk more about rule relaxing versus rule dropping. Uh, I wanted to just get your thoughts on why that's uh, that's an important first step, as it, at least as it's outlined in the book, why that's an important first step in getting started with unschooling. Um, for me, that was a really big thing. Um, also, because so many people, like I, we were talking earlier, right, that they come and they look for the rules of unschooling, mm-hmm. and they hear what unschool experienced unschooling parents are sharing. They, they, you know, they say we don't have rules in our family, right? They see the little sound bites, the you know, the little unschooling memes and, and sure, stuff, sure. you know, and and they say you know we don't have rules. But it's such a process to get there because so many, uh, you know, I've had enough times where people have sent me questions, you know, so I dropped the rules <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and things are crazy. <laughs> right. yeah. It's chaos here. I don't know. They're just doing all this crazy stuff, you know, and and that's not the point at all. You know, it's it's about um, the shift is about understanding the principles behind things and the understanding that uh, we often talk about rules to routines because routines can be so comforting. So it's not about throwing all the rules out the window and leaving them to do whatever they want. 
for many children and even adults, right? There's comfort in routines. I have my like routine before I get ready for bed, uh, when I get up in the morning. The big difference is that rules so often um, follow by the clock, you know, like bedtime, mealtime, et cetera, rather than by the moment, right? Remember we were talking earlier about getting to know yourself yeah. and understanding yourself better? So uh, noticing when you're feeling tired, right? Yeah. When you're getting frustrated, what what do I do? What tools help me? What routine helps me calm down? When I get hungry, you know... Without those, when you put those rules on top of people, you are um, silencing those messages from themselves, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, or and that why question, you know, don't throw balls in the house or whatever, you know. But it's but, like you problem know, there's, solving, there's, right? Like exactly. like kind of like um, adaptable problem solving skills and critical thinking problem solving skills. And and we have the time now for that, mm. right? Because now we can we can talk about the why, and now you don't need the rule, because there's a principle behind. Okay, you know we don't want to break stuff in our house, you know. But there's so many ways that you can uh, do something, accomplish something. Whether it's going down the basement where there isn't breakable stuff, whether it's going outside in the yard, you know, um, whether it's you know grabbing food when you're hungry or this kind of food or, you know, finding out when the next meal is probably going to be. It is about um, when something comes up in the moment is looking at the moment and talking about that moment, like the constraints that are there, the needs that are there and boom, choosing, choosing, making your next choice, choosing your next step. Right. And then seeing where things are from there. You know, maybe you have a nap, mm. Right. Right. Maybe it ends up being a long nap. Maybe it ends up being two hours. You end up staying up extra late that night, you know, and you have time to talk about that and notice that. It doesn't have to be long um, conversations, but they're always learning. They're always paying attention. They're always noticing these things when you're not, you know, on top of them trying to control them. Now they learn, oh, you know what, maybe next time I don't want to have a nap or I want to set a little alarm so it's a shorter nap. They learn, that's how they learn so much about themselves. And so the the no rule chaos, because you're just like no rules now. You're not engaging with them. You're not building that connection. You're just not enforcing a rule. You want to move uh, when you're moving away from rules. That's why we talk about moving to routines, because then it keeps you involved. It keeps you noticing. It keeps you connecting with them. It keeps you having conversations with them. So that's how they're learning and figuring things out. And that's how we're learning more about them. And you know what? It's how I started learning so much more about myself because I had never really done that before. So what are some of the the, the cornerstone routines or principles uh, in your unschooling environment? That's a good question. I mean, I, it, they're just so ingrained that I wouldn't say, you know, Ask. I wouldn't ask one of my kids to sit down and say, "What are our our principles?" <laughs> right, right, sure. But but they're you know we don't we we respect everybody's things. We respect each other as people, so we don't um, make decisions for each other. We check in with each other. Um, we treat our own things and other things you know as nicely as we can, but. We also understand that accidents happen. That's the one thing is is that um, you get to a point where things aren't done. You know, you really trust that it 
was an accident. You're never trying to hurt one another. Sure. You know what I mean? You get to that point where, you know, things happen, um, but we're very trusting and respectful of each other. So, I mean, that that is a principle, but we've gotten there because it works for us. Absolutely. And we can't imagine not doing that anymore. That's kind of where your principles get to. It's like, well, I can't imagine doing that anymore. (laughs) Exactly. That's just not how we are. And they're broader, right? And they they have yeah. easy to answer why questions, like the things you laid yeah. out. That is that is sort of the opposite of so much of what we grow up with, which are like long before we know what the word arbitrary means. We know that a whole bunch of stuff being imposed on us is very arbitrary, right? Yeah. And yeah. that maybe this thing is a rule because of one bad thing that happened to one kid one time. Like that's really all it takes to make something that's like applicable to everybody. And we're surrounded by those things, certainly in school. And it produces, you know, a kind of resentment and it produces a kind of powerlessness, I think. And it, it it's a really frustrating thing to grow up with. So I think even if the principles just kind of exist in the background and they're not written on the wall, that's still really important. If something is stated as a principle, it has a very compelling answer to the why question, you know, very convincing mm-hmm. kind of answer. And it stimulates discussion. Exactly. Absolutely. Right? Conversation. Because one thing rules do is is you get to a point where, where people just stop thinking, right? You know, well, that's the way it is. That's the rule. You just follow it. There, you know, creativity is lost. Critical thinking is lost because they just don't do it. It's like, I just know that's a rule. That's what I'm supposed to do. And this is what's so challenging. And I think one of the reasons, you know, there's, we, we don't have, teen rebellion here except like because your parents are helping you accomplish the goals that you're trying to accomplish what are you rebelling against the the own thing the thing that you wanted to do (laughs) yeah exactly but so often the challenge with rules is now if you're expecting them to follow rules you need a rule for every situation Exactly. exactly. And then your child goes out into the world a little bit, you know, and, and now you're scared. You don't want them to go out because what if something happens that I haven't given them a rule for? Yep. And then they they don't have any practice at critical thinking or creativity or coming up with a way through a new and unique situation. So when they come to a spot where there is no rule, they're really stuck. There's no practice in making connections between a situation and a guiding principle. Right. Exactly. Just, is there no a rule experience. here or not? Yeah, exactly. Yep, exactly. You know, in the book, too, there's kind of a cautioning uh, when it comes to rule dropping versus rule relaxing. And the, the best like relation I can think of it from my own experience is being a teacher. And the years I spent teaching high school history uh, in a private school, I did this ceremony at the beginning of the year where I would take all the textbooks and I would put them in the closet <laughs> in front of the kids. <laughs> We're not doing this anymore. And I remember... Yeah. You know, I, I don't think it really fully registered at the time, but as I looked out at the faces in the classroom, there was kind of like some terror, right? Like it mm-hmm. registered as neglect or indifference or almost like encouraging a kind of anarchy or instability to say, we're not going to do the thing that you hate, but you've gotten so comfortable yeah. with doing. Uh-huh. And you you kind of say this in the, in that chapter that... 
kids might register that in a similar way. Like if all of a sudden these rules we've accepted, whether we like them or not, or enjoy following them or not, they've been there. And kids obviously do like stability and predictability. If they're gone, there's lots of questions like, well, what? My parents don't care what I do anymore. Do they not care Mm -hmm. about me anymore? So that gradual process or that relaxing process is really important to, I, I think, maybe avoid kinds of feelings that they at certain ages might not be able to fully articulate, like how that's making them feel. Mm -hmm. No, that's such a great point. Because, you know, so often beforehand, we've been saying things, you know, you know, I I say, no, you can't do this, you know, because I love you. I'm trying to protect you. Um, You know, this is a rule because I care about you. I don't want you to get hurt on the monkey bars when I said no monkey bars, et cetera, et cetera. So we've been giving our children these messages for so many years. And now if you just drop that it can so easily be interpreted as because they take those message messages as truth, right? So it's like, oh, well, now they're letting me climb wherever I want. Do they not care about my health? Do they not care if I get hurt, etc. Right? Mm-hmm. So when you're going gradually, and again, it's back to that connection and conversation, right? Now you can say, you can say things like, you know, hey. I don't mind if you if you want to try that, go for it. That's really cool. I'll stand over here, mm-hmm. you know, so you can um, be talking. So now that we're getting rid of rules, we're bringing in these conversations and now they're seeing what we're doing instead, because when you just drop them and leave it, it's like a vacuum. You've just sucked everything that they know out of their lives and haven't put anything back in. Right. Absolutely. That's when chaos right. comes. That's when they feel like the rug's been pulled out from underneath them. It's like, what the heck is going on here? But when instead of spouting out that rule, you take that same moment to have a conversation with them. Oh, you know, I'm worried about this or or, you know, whatever the concern is that that rule was supposedly addressing for you. The really fun thing is, is that so often in protecting people with a rule, right, especially our children, we just give them that rule. Right. And right. so there's there's no engagement. There's no relationship. There's no connection in that. There's just a spouting of the rule. And then we just leave them alone, expecting them to follow the rule. Right. Yeah. Like don't watch TV or whatever that rule is. We just tell them and then we leave them. But (laughs) now we are engaging with them and talking to them and learning so much more about each other. And and now we understand the reasons behind it. And together we can figure out a way to address whatever the original concern might have been. So, you know, they can still see that you care, Mm -hmm. but you don't have to express that care through a rule. (laughs) <laughs> exactly. So in the I think in the book that how do I get started section of the book, this idea of don't drop the rules is presented first, but then that an outcome of that number one is building strong relationships, which is what we've been talking about. And we talked about earlier in the show in the introduction to the show as well. So yeah, one leads very nicely into the other. Uh, the third part of that section is about navigating the law and making connections locally. And I just wanted you to share your experience with doing that. I, I envision Canada as kind of a restrictive place for a lot of things. And I don't know what that process was like for you, but if you were able to abstract from it any general guidelines for people, most of my audience is obviously in the United States, um, but just ways of navigating that and, and managing that navigation that were helpful to you. 
Um, well, here in Ontario, Canada, right now, it's it's a very great place oh, to good, uh, good. homeschool and school. All we are asked to do um, is to fill out a letter at the beginning of each year saying, just listing the children that are home, saying, I'm taking responsibility and homeschooling them, sending that in, and that's it. Mm-hmm. When I started that that PPM, that memorandum hadn't quite come in yet. It came in about a year after we started. Um, so, you know, I just, I went and told the school, I found out, you know, almost most uh, governments have websites full of all their um, information, right? Mm-hmm. All their policies, etc. So I went, found out what the policy was, phoned the right person. Um, Some superintendent phoned me and talked to me a bit about, um, you know, asked me about what curriculum I was using and stuff. So, you know, I basically said, well, you know, we're going to be and and you have a language that you speak with them. Right. Right. That kind of education is, you know, that that we will be going to, you know, the science center and, and how will they be picking up reading? And, you know, it was just having conversations with the people in the way um, that they needed to have that information. So it it was mostly just speaking in their language versus my own language. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've had that same experience as a tutor or a facilitator when people wanted to pull their children out of school. Just being able to build that bridge between giving people what they need to hear or want to hear in a way that's, you know, obviously not deceptive, right? You're not doing something completely. You're just, you're, it's, it's more like a translation project. It's really funny because it was something I was quite skilled at from my my degree was in engineering and commerce. So mm-hmm. I did a combined degree and I spent a lot of time in my job um, going between the technical engineering side and the um, the regular uh, maintenance staff and, and stuff like that, oh, like sure. in the plant. I worked at a plant, yeah. right? I worked, I worked more on the plant side. So when I would go and talk to like the system engineers that were out in the office. So to me, having two languages, two ways to describe things was typical. That's kind of, you know, the way the world works. When I'm talking, when someone's curious about unschooling and it's like their first time, I'm going to try and connect with them where they are. So I'm going to use more like school language. I'm going to use examples of how something happens in a classroom and contrast that with how it might happen with homeschooling. When you're trying to communicate with someone and you want that communication to go well, you're going to try and use the language that they're most likely to understand. Absolutely. Yep. So like you said, you're not trying to be deceptive at all, but you're trying to express your thoughts in the language that are that's going to make the most sense for them. Right. And also trying to, you know, meter your own hostility. Maybe maybe <laughs> not everybody feels that, but like having to report to people who don't know your children, who don't care about your children. Yeah. Um, there is, you know, I just, this is what I've heard from people in, in my audience. There is some, and I felt it too, just as like an advocate, you know, for, for a child. I mean, and to me, that would be my work to work through first. Yeah. Yeah. Before I had to engage, you know, if I had to vent with somebody, if I had to complain, um, and do the thinking to realize, okay, you know, I understand why I'm mad and frustrated and, you know. I and why this this step needs to be in my life, you know, because I can move. 
Right. That right. that would be, you know, this this is still a choice I'm making. I'm still choosing to to live in this place. And then I would get to, uh, you know, all the good things about it. Why I'm enjoying, why I'm enjoying homeschooling, why I'm enjoying unschooling, why I'm enjoying where we're living, wh- what the kids are enjoying. And this is just one of those hoops I have to jump through to make that happen. So, you know, whatever work I have to do to process to get through it so I can make that hoop jumping as easy as possible on myself. Because if I'm confrontational... Chances are that process may well be prolonged. Oh, right? absolutely. Yep. It's almost a guarantee <laughs> that it will be. Exactly. So, I mean, it doesn't, it's not lying to myself either that I don't like it, but it's doing the work to get to the place where I can make it happen as smoothly as possible. So I wanted to talk just for a minute about making connections locally. You said Ontario is definitely a home education friendly province. Are a lot of people doing it? And have you made a lot of connections in your area? Um, I wouldn't go with a lot of people doing it. Right. Um, certainly not when we started way back in 2002. Like I said, I found some people on a forum and I think we went to one little meetup in the city about an hour from here. Sure. Um, but, you know, the, the kids didn't really connect with the few kids that were there, which was, you know, totally fine. But I think what we did when we wanted to finally see some some other unschoolers in person, like face to face, see that they existed other than me talking to them online, we actually drove down to South Carolina um, the next year. And that was our first at a conference. And that was our first time seeing other families face to face, which was lots of fun, too. But, you know, that's one thing Um, that didn't get in the way of my children's lives at all. Because other people unschooling, yeah, it's nice um, to connect with them. But unschooling isn't a common interest, especially for children. Exactly. Yes, yes. This is the point. So when we talk about making connections locally, and this is actually one of the things like I'm from New Hampshire, and on the New Hampshire seacoast, there's this new school called Big Fish. And I interviewed the woman uh, last fall. And she was talking about, you know, making connections to adults in the community. So when people think about like connections for unschoolers, it's way more broad than just like, let's find other people who, you know, finger quotes, unschool for similar, like philosophical or political or, you know, cultural type reasons. It's let's connect kids around, you know, this musical instrument that they like, or the sport that they want to play, or this online interest that they have. Those connections can, it doesn't have to be restricted to people who are approaching education the same way. It doesn't even have to be restricted to kids. Exactly, exactly. When you connect around your interests, that is so much uh, a richer way to connect and find friends, to find people that you connect with when you have a shared interest. Mm -hmm. And I love the age piece. You know, my son, uh, one of my sons was very interested in karate for years. His class was filled with young kids right up to adults. Right. Right. And and he connected with the people who he connected with. It had nothing to do with age. Um, Same with with my daughter. She was volunteering at a thrift store. And, you know, it it was really, really funny. There is, I guess, a requirement here um, that the high school kids, before they're allowed to graduate, have to do so many weeks of community service. Right. 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 And so she was volunteering at this thrift store and, and then, um, winter came and 
all, all the other volunteers are retired. We're retired people, right? And one of the women came up to her and she said, oh, I'm off, you know, for the winter because she goes somewhere warm for the winter. She said, so I guess I won't see you when I get back in a couple of months. She says, it was really nice to meet you. And my daughter looked at her and she's like, what? Why wouldn't I see? Well, she's like, well, your weeks will be up. Oh, right, right. <laughs> and Lizzie's like, oh, no, I'm not leaving. I'll be here. And the woman was dumbstruck. <laughs> It was just uh, a complete shock to her that that a, a teen would be volunteering of their own volition and staying, <laughs> right? right? right. <laughs> Absolutely dumbstruck. And, you know, she made connections with some. There was a uh, – my daughter's a photographer. There was an, uh, a woman that worked at the thrift store whose husband was a photographer and she was a costumer for like theater shows and stuff. And Lissy loved props and she was always picking up stuff at the thrift store. So, you know, that came up in conversation. I took her over two or three times to that lady's house and, and we got darkroom equipment from him and she let her borrow a bunch of props, you know, and, and my daughter's hanging out and having fun with the retired couple. Age isn't a thing. It's the interest. Did you see how all those connections came from interests of theirs that exactly. connected? Right. It's it's amazing. So, yeah, whether or not – the other thing is even though those kids, they may be children and they may be children in school, um, my kids engaging with them and going to their house and, and meeting their parents was great fodder for conversation and our lifestyle and our choices and why we do things this way. You know, they weren't isolated and insulated mm -hmm. um, to only one way of living. They saw how other families lived, how other people lived, other choices that were made. And that was also part of the skill, you know, how, how they were so good at helping them navigate situations right, right. as they move through it they brought the skills that they had to the relationships so yeah it's fascinating stuff but like i said i've been fascinated with unschooling ever since <laughs> right right i i wanted to talk a, a little bit more if you have time just about a couple of uh, learning topics sure okay so uh, a listener to my show jahida she asked this question or it was really just a concern that she wanted to express to you in this show. As a parent, you want your children to have everything they need to thrive. And it's scary to leave it to, quote, unquote, chance. It's scary to fully trust that they will learn what they need to learn of their own volition and of their own desire. And I found a couple of things on your website that I thought were helpful with this concern that was expressed. But I wanted to just, before I introduce those, I just wanted to let you respond to that in a general way if you wanted to. Well, I'm glad you found a couple of uh, posts or articles that will that will relate. That's great. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but off the, so off the top of my head, to me, um, I guess, to me, it comes down to the definition of trust. Trust to me is not just, is not faith. It's not just saying, okay, I'm going to believe this and, you know, step back. Um, to me, trust comes from experience. Mm. So like I talked about so much today about um, our relationships and connecting and how that's the foundation of unschooling and learning through that connection and and being involved in their day-to-day -day lives 
I build trust through experience, through seeing them learning. You remember when I talked about earlier how when I dropped the expectations and just lived with them yeah. and saw where things went? By the end of that first year, I had all the trust I needed in unschooling. But it was because I had seen enough times that where they wanted to go was just so much better than where I thought I should take them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. That that's one thing when you come to unschooling, we talk about this. I gave it a year because you need to see the ebb and flow of life. You know, those quiet times where they're more introspective and see what that blossoms into. But you have to give it that time and space to build up that trust. That trust means that, you know what, um, I've seen them um, really kind of cocoon for a while and I've seen them come out as a butterfly, if you want to use that metaphor in that particular topic or whatever it is that they were cocooning about. But I didn't know that at the time, right? But I saw it happen. And then a few months later, I saw it happen again. So the next time I see them cocooning, even though I don't know what it's about, but they're pondering, they might not even be able to explain it, but they feel the need to, to quiet down for a while. I trust now because I've seen it happen enough times that I totally trust whatever they're doing is what they need to do and it's the best thing for them. So experience kind of relieved that concern. Exactly. Trust was built through experience. That's interesting because Jahida's oldest is just over two, right? Uh, She's a mom of two and the oldest is just over two. Two. So yeah, I I mean, and and I'm not a parent, so I can't fully understand the concern that's expressed here. And, you know, my answer, and and this even references some of your work, would be like, if you have that concern, are they going to learn what they need to on their own? My advice more from, you know, a teacher-tutor side of that would be, you know, the best teacher is already there as long as it's nurtured, and that's curiosity. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm absolutely sure she's a terrific mom. I'm absolutely sure she'll do that. And, you know, the second piece was, you know, understanding what real and effective learning is, which is also part of like a a person's de-schooling process, because we have a conception of learning and maybe even me, you know, I've been doing this show for nine years. I like to think I'm pretty alert and on top of, you know, a lot of these topics, but I still have a schooled mindset in a lot of ways, Mm -hmm. not just with learning, but with doing, learning and doing, there's still some, uh, I don't, pain, like associated mm-hmm. with that, like there's this flash of, you know, discomfort or resistance, resistance, yeah. procrastination, just because I was so effectively schooled for so long. But mm-hmm. I think, you know, nurturing curiosity and being able to assess like what and understand what real and effective learning is along the way, I would hope would relieve some of those concerns that, again, I want to reiterate, I don't fully understand not being a parent. The other piece that I I want to bring out, um, she she talked about what they will learn, what they need to learn Mm -hmm. of their own volition. So that need to learn, that is going to be a huge piece that you're going to tease apart during de-schooling too. Because you get, when you get to that point, um, that need to learn is when it comes up, like, you were talking about pursuing their curiosity and that whether or not that need to learn is at age seven, 12, 
25, 32, does not matter. When you're looking at lifelong learning, you're, it's not a curriculum. It's not that learning needs to be done by the time they're 18 because all adults are supposed to already know everything, right? Mm-hmm. When when you get comf- really comfortable with the idea that they can learn because through experience, you've seen them learn whatever it is they needed to know in that moment to accomplish something they were wanting to do. So if when they're 25, they want to accomplish something now, you know that they can learn whatever it is that they need at that moment. So that whole piece that they, what they need to learn is going to morph for you. And and so it's not going to be like a set of, you worry when I think they have a set of knowledge that they should know by the time they're 18 and are they going to encounter it on of their own volition? Right. I think that's where the worry comes from. But once you realize that that curriculum is arbitrary, the ages that they need to learn it is arbitrary and that they can learn it whenever the curiosity leads them or the need leads them to it and they can pick it up because you've seen through experience them do that time and time again, you completely lose that that concept of what they need to learn. It's like it could be anything at any time. Absolutely. And do you think there's any like question, like as parents are trying to like live consciously through the the fostering or nurturing of curiosity, are there any like questions that they should just be keeping in their mind as they're observing their child's growth? I think the big thing is just observing them and, and understanding them. So often um, we, you know, you see them doing something and you register that they're doing something and boom, then you're off back in your own thoughts or mm-hmm. your own activity or whatever. And that does the whole process really a disservice because um, it so helps to understand why they're there. Right. Even how they got there to that moment, what they're picking up from that moment. Because once you understand that, you're in a much better position to bring something else to them or to point something else out that is in that is in keeping with the direction that they're trying to go. So you're trying to help and support them to continue on the path that they're trying to follow, right? Their right. curiosity. What is it about that activity that they're curious about? It, it can be lots of different things in just one thing. You know, um, my son loved video games, but by watching him and talking with him, hanging out with him, I learned that the thing he loved about video games was the story. Yeah. I noticed that, oh, geez, he doesn't play sports video games. He seems to play mostly role-playing games, etc. So all these clues, because I was paying attention helped me understand what it was that he loved about it. And I could bring more of that into his life and support his interest. And not like superimpose your own goals on it, right? Exactly. I remember growing up and like trying to, or expressing an interest in in cultivating an interest. And some adult would come and say to me like, oh, you know what you could do? You can be one of these. I'm like, well, no, that's not why I'm, I don't think, I mean, is that what I have to do? It's not what I want to do. Maybe I should just stop. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's there's that piece too. You know, when my daughter would would say, uh, "I like photography," oh, you're going to be a photographer. You know, <laughs> all these presumptions that we make about people and especially children. But yeah, you never. It's just so fascinating to watch them and see what that piece 
um, of the thing that they're doing is that is connecting for them in that moment. So, I mean, for one thing, when you first start, it, it's quite important to not interrupt and say and try to point out, oh, well, look, it does this and it does this because you could be taking them off in a path that's completely different from where they were going. And now you've interrupted them and maybe they've lost their train of thought. They lose their interest and they move on. But if you're paying enough attention to see, you can start to bring things in that aren't interruptions, but they're additions. Yes, they're, yes. You're enriching things. You're not putting it in the totally opposite direction. <laughs> right. So you can like using your wisdom as an adult to show possibilities instead of like narrow the path. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You're trying to enrich, help them enrich things and, and gain more experience. What's going to bring them more joy? You know, so often in the end, that's, uh, that's how I ended up with my website name, Living Joyfully, because I noticed that if I focused on the joy and and following the joy with them, we always went in the right direction. They learned more. They had more fun. Um, they understood more because they were, in essence, that's following your curiosity, right? Because you enjoy that. That is where you're going to pick up the most. You're going to have the most fun. All of that points to the best learning. But I, I no longer need to be watching for the learning because I know it's happening if we're following our curiosity and enjoying what we're doing and following that path. The learning just happens. Right. So was there a point, because I bet there's a lot of people who are at the beginning of this process or the outside of this process. Was there a point for you where, I don't know, maybe they were teenagers, maybe they're getting close to adulthood and you had some kind of doubt, like, yeah, but what are they, what are they going to do? You know, what's going to become of them? What, what about once you're surrounded by, you know, this, all of these other people who are about that age and they're going to college or they're getting an entry level job or they're doing this internship? Is it possible to not feel or be affected by, you know, the presence of all of these comparisons that are going on around them? I think most often it's work to do. Like we, we talk about de-schooling, especially at the beginning, but it's something that, that always comes up because, yeah. you know, un until your first child hits, you know, 18 or, you know, everybody's going to college, those certain, those certain ages, those certain milestones in a conventional life, right? Mm -hmm. You haven't really thought about it before. So yes, when they hit those, those um, conventional times, often something comes up. And, and you feel it and you you feel some discomfort and and then it's more time it's time to process through that again and you know why is that important to me why am I feeling like that what is the advantage of that how is that working for other people how did that work for me at that moment was mm. that something helpful for me in my life just getting to the place okay so now comparing with with my child's life and so what do they know about themselves differently how they they approach things is that milestone um important at that particular age you know you know we were talking before about uh following rules by clocks and and stuff like that age is just another clock. Is it, is it important at that particular age? Right. You know, so much of that is, is, is linked to our school system, right? Mm, and graduation indeed. from the school system and outside of that system, how does it really relate to being a human being? 
and mm-hmm. and living in the world. So it it is. It's all that processing. It does come up, and and there are times when it kind of sneaks up on you, and you're like, why am I worried? <laughs> right. Why am I feeling uncomfortable right now? And in those times, for me, what always worked best was to look to my kids again. Yeah. Because when I saw them learning. Um, having fun, um, doing things, engaging, still being, you know, happy and laughing and doing amazing things that I hadn't thought of, even though they wouldn't, you know, may not look amazing in the grand scheme of the conventional path, right? Right. Um, when I saw them, it reminded me why this was important, why we had chosen to do this and why for us, this was a better choice. Absolutely. But yeah, those those would come up. And I would have to do the work and look to my kids, and and it would remind me why this was so important. Absolutely, uh, I wanted to finish today just with the the other part of what my answer to that that question was that Jai asked, um, mm-hmm. which was about you know identifying the characteristics of of real and effective learning. And you actually have a blog piece on um, living joyfully about this. It's called Curious and Engaged, and I'm going to link it in the show notes because it is very detailed and very thorough. And I'm actually hoping that maybe I could get you back at some point in the future and we could do like a long form discussion on just this. But at the end here, I just wanted to make explicit what these three characteristics are, even though I think we're definitely circling back over previous parts of the conversation. But, Mm -hmm. you know, these three elements just as something to leave the, the listeners with, I think is really important. (laughs) Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to discuss it in depth. Um, But yeah, for me, these were the three characteristics of real and effective learning that jumped out to me. And when I talk about learning as real and effective, I mean, learning that's understood and remembered, you know, learning that that you move forward with that's understanding that adds value to to your understanding of the world. So one is engagement, which is the act of exploring and playing with an idea, a topic or a skill. So as we've talked about so much, when you're following your child's curiosity, engagement is bound to follow, right? And when when they're engaged in that activity of their choice, the questions that they're asking, they're running through their head or being answered immediately through what they're doing. They're right there. That's where the strong strongest learning connections are made because things are making sense because they're asking a question and they're answering it right there. That's learning that sticks. The second is motivation, which is about staying engaged in that exploration, even through challenges when things get, get a little bit hard. So with unschooling that we're all about intrinsic motivation because they're pursuing their own goals, the things that they truly want to accomplish. And they're quite willing to learn whatever they need to know along the way, taking whatever time they need it, trying again and again and again, because that is something that they personally want to accomplish and they're in control of their learning. Yeah. You know, no roadblock is more insurmountable than the one you can't see what's on the other side of it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, oh, well, I guess you can't go this way anymore, right? But, <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I've learned uh, as far as in like one of the things that I've I've been working on being really deliberate about in 2018 is connecting visions to long-term goals, to medium-term goals, to the immediate projects that I have, right? Like mm-hmm. I always have projects. I can always feel busy. It, it, is busyness really the same thing as productivity? I don't think it is right? Mm-hmm. If it's not working towards something larger, but being very clear on what the long-term goals and visions for my work and for myself are, you know, 
lots of the things that I'm doing right now are very difficult and very frustrating and even very new for me at 40 years old. But knowing what's on the other side of the roadblocks that I encounter, uh, I think Einstein said something like, you know, I and, and I took this advice with a lot of like the more difficult projects that I worked on, like, a, you know, a podcast that was really complicated or a video that required a lot of like uh, new technical skills. I would envision the outcome, you know, mm-hmm. and once I could see it and feel it, like if you're editing a video, you can skip to the end and make that part, you know, and say, this is how it ends and everyone's going to yeah. love it. This is where everyone applauds, right? Yeah. And then all those things that are like closer to you or, or more immediate that are frustrating or you really don't know how to figure out, you'll get through them because the ending is so compelling. And I think that, you know, this is a huge piece of intrinsic motivation as it relates to goals. If kids have their own goals they're much more likely to persevere through those those sort of short-term, along-the-way difficulties if they know where they're trying to get. I didn't understand anything that I was doing when I was, you know, in high school or why. There mm-hmm. was no why. There was no why yeah. to any of that, not, not one that was compelling to me. So, uh, you know, I was, uh, that's where I developed most of my bad habits as far as, you know, motivation, organization, productivity, task completion that stuck with, that stick with me until today in some ways. So I think this is uh, the second one is, is really so important as, as a benefit of, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, unschooling. Sure. Well, and you know, the thing that, that really fascinates me is when you think about school and how it's steeped in extrinsic motivation, right? Right, They tried external rewards that actually motivates the students to learn as little as possible because they want to just learn just enough to get that reward if they even think the reward is valuable right and like you said they can't see any goal there's no particular goal that's why school needs the reward in the first place and like you said when you toss those history books in the closet that's why they, you know, one of the reasons why they could feel so off put, like now all of a sudden they don't know what, what they need. Like that, that was the definition of their reward there, right? Yeah, that was yeah, the minimum yeah. they needed. I needed to know the chapters that you are going to cover and even what sections. And that's the minimum. I just needed to memorize that and I'm good. So mm-hmm. you took that away from them. Yeah, right? So yeah. that's very disconcerting. <laughs> right, right. And the third characteristic is thinking when we've talked about that, the creativity and critical analysis, which is key to the bigger picture understanding of how the idea or the topic or the skill fits into the world. And I love there's a quote by uh, Maria Popova um, that I love. And she wrote, we live in a world awash with information, but we seem to face a growing scarcity of wisdom. And what's worse, we confuse the two. We believe that having access to more information produces more knowledge, which results in more wisdom. But if anything, the opposite is true. More and more information without the proper context and interpretation only muddles our understanding of the world rather than enriching it. And I think that so concisely distinguishes between schooling and unschooling because at school, learning is all about remembering those pieces of information, right? So you can put them on the test and if you get it right on the test, you've learned it. Boom. Yeah. And in contrast... Unschooling parents value the context and the connections that surround that piece of information and cultivate a learning environment for their children where the why and the how are just as important as the what. So when they're engaged in that moment, they're thinking about it, they're putting together that picture of the world, not just memorizing random facts. They're building that understanding and that wisdom. So I love that. So those three, when you've got those three characteristics together, engagement, intrinsic motivation, 
critical and creative thinking, and they're all at play, learning thrives. Absolutely. And like I said, I'll link to that in the show, and I hope we can have a long-form conversation about that in, in the future, because I think this is a great show in itself, for sure. I'd love to. All right. So, Pam, thank you so much for coming on the show. Could you just give your website for my audience so they can go and check out your work? Absolutely. You can find me at livingjoyfully.ca. And the free book is called What is what Unschooling? Is unschooling? And yep. you've got several other books as well, uh, Free to Learn, Free to Live. Those are all available on the site. Mm-hmm. And my newest one is The uh, Unschooling Journey. It was the, a three-year project of mine that I just finished. I just published it last month. Um, and it's looking at the unschooling journey, the parents' unschooling journey through the lens of Joseph Campbell's Hero's Journey. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. Most of the people listening to us right now are most likely podcast listeners, so you also have a podcast. I do. It's called Exploring Unschooling. Awesome. Pam, thank you so much. I really, really enjoyed the conversation. Yeah, me too, Brett. Thanks so much for inviting me. It was great. Center and you're always free in every direction.